Section 7 of the Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 State of Parties in the City, Consulship of Cicero, and Conspiracy of Catalina. Part 3 Caesar had already obtained the praetorship and the elections for the years 62. Pompeius, with his eyes still on the city, had sent his creature Metellus Nepos to secure one seat at least in his interest on the bench of tribunes. Cato was in the act of withdrawing in disgust from the city when he met the agent of the ambitious proconsul on his route to the scene of election and determined himself to return for the purpose of thwarting his manoeuvres. He presented himself to the tribes at the Comitia and obtained a place among the tribunes along with the opponent he had set himself to watch and baffle but the nobles had greater cause of alarm from the rising estimation of caesar whom the people were taking more especially into favour after the daring act by which lentulus and his associates had been so summarily punished they trembled for the safety of one whom the nobles had chosen to suspect of complicity in their plot on one occasion, when he happened to be detained longer than usual in the Senate House, they surrounded the place and tumultuously demanded to be reassured by his actual appearance. Caesar was nothing daunted. He continued to vex and harass the leaders of the Optimates. Catullus had been appointed as the most eminent of the ruling party in the state to carry out the restoration of the capital after the conflagration under Sulla he might now expect that his name should be honourably commemorated on the front of the new edifice but caesar audaciously interposed with a charge of malversation and urged the people to demand that the honour of the auspicious work should be transferred to pompeius this was perhaps a mere bravado the nobles by great exertion succeeded in warding off the blow and the name of Catullus was duly inscribed on the great national monument. But they were not only irritated by the affront, they were alarmed at the design which lurked too plainly beneath it. Metellus Nepos, in the interest of his patron, connected himself with Caesar and the popular demagogues. Cicero had been the cherished instrument of the Senate, and he now struck at the Senate through Cicero's side the consul on resigning the fasces made an oration to the people and proudly declaimed on the subject of his own patriotic exertions but nepos abruptly interposed the man he said who condemned our fellow-citizens unheard shall not himself be listened to he required the orator to confine himself to the customary oath that he had done nothing contrary to the laws i swear exclaimed cicero that i have saved the state the nobles shouted applause cato hailed him as the father of his country and the great mass of the citizens added their acclamations and put down the oppositions of the factions nepos threatened the senate with the recall of pompeius ostensibly to crush catalina who at this moment was not yet hunted down but really to overbear its influence in the city cato vowed that he would resist such a motion to the death 
a scuffle ensued in which cato was perhaps the first to employ actual violence nepos profited by his colleague's indiscretion to declare his sanctity violated and to flee as if for safety to his patron's camp the senate retorted by asserting that he had himself vacated his office inasmuch as the tribune was forbidden by law to quit the city at the same time it suspended caesar from his functions as praetor and when he refused to resign his fasces extorted them from him by military force caesar retired with dignity to the inviolable asylum of the regia the official residence of the chief pontiff and there calmly awaited the result of this impolitic act of power the people soon rallied round him and compelled the nobles to retrace their steps cicero meanwhile alarmed by his own position counselled moderation when vettius one of his spies in the affair of catalina insisted on proclaiming caesar's complicity in the plot the senate refused to listen to him cicero himself took pains to appease crassus and restore him to the confidence of the optimates who still however received him coldly it would have been more prudent to have acknowledged him as their chief in conjunction at least with catullus and thus to have secured the services of the man who besides his ample wealth and large personal following was the best of the captains whom they might have pitted against pompeius but crassus seems to have been eminently unpopular descended from the long ennobled stock of the licinii he might have put forth a special claim to the respect of the old patrician houses of the commonwealth his family name might serve to remind them of the highest triumphs of roman eloquence at the bar and in the forum but while his great rivals had each their party of devoted adherents he alone conciliated no personal attachments cicero whose flatteries extorted a smile from pompeius and gained more genuine gratitude from caesar who soothed the wrath even of the surviving friends of catalina by judicious compliances could make no impression upon the ungenial nature of crassus under this discouragement he still struggled to maintain a politic union between the senators and the knights the two privileged bulwarks of social order but the perverseness of the associates with whom he had to deal rendered the task hopeless the nobles spurned the knights haughtily from them cato repulsed the prayer of the collectors of revenue who sought relief from an imprudent contract with the treasury the chasm between the two orders opened more widely than ever and cicero at last resolved to throw himself wholly into the arms of the oligarchy who really despised him and reject the advances of the class to which he personally belonged and which might have more justly appreciated his merits the coldness with which the optimates persisted in treating crassus naturally induced that important personage to connect himself more closely with caesar pompeius was at this moment expected back in italy between him and crassus there were ancient grudges and actual jealousies each was disposed to regard the other as his direct opponent and the main obstacle to his own attainment of undisputed ascendancy in the public councils when the optimates refused to support crassus in his suit for the consulship they had driven him for the moment 
to ally himself with his competitor Pompeius. But in denouncing him as the accomplice of Catalina, they had reduced him to the alternative of making terms with Caesar. This last alliance he now strengthened by lending money to the young spendthrift, for Caesar was now sunk in debt more deeply than ever. His tastes were splendid, his profusion lavish, every step in the career of honors he had purchased with immense sacrifices. His turn had come to take the command of a praetorial province, and the further Spain had fallen to him, but he lacked means to make the necessary outlay. He had already borrowed, as we have seen, of his friends and partisans, and wanted, as he carelessly said, a sum of two million aurei sterling to be worth nothing. The purse of Crassus was now his last resource, and this purse Crassus was content to open to him for the sake of the connection it offered him with one whom he regarded as a bold but obsequious dependent. Nor was this the only way in which fortune smiled on Caesar's aspirations. At the moment when the violent action of the Senate against him had attached his own party more closely to his side, an incident had occurred which threatened to create a schism between them. Publius Clodius, a dissolute youth and a favorite with the people, had introduced himself into Caesar's house in female attire during the celebration of the rites of the Bona Dea, from which all males were rigorously excluded. Discovered by the outcry of a servant-maid, who had recognized him, he was hastily expelled. But the affair, which originated probably in private intrigue, became known and denounced by interested parties as a grave public scandal. The Senate affected alarm. The pontiffs were consulted. Caesar's wife, Pompeia, seemed to be an accomplice in the crime. A solemn inquiry was instituted, and Caesar was expected to prosecute the offender, who was a friend of his own, as well as a favorite with the popular party. The Senate passed a decree that he should not quit Rome for his province till an affair which thus compromised his interests had been brought to a conclusion. Caesar sacrificed his wife to save his party connections. He divorced Pompeia, not, as he said, because he judged her guilty, but because, as he proudly proclaimed, the wife of Caesar should be above suspicion. The phrase had immense success. The populace were charmed at its high-flown magnanimity. The nobles themselves smiled, possibly at its ingenuity. Clodius succeeded in gaining the suffrages of his judges by favor and bribery. Crassus lent the money. But Caesar was reputed to have negotiated the loan. The restless adversary of the nobles hastened to quit the city for his province, well satisfied at having thrown into it the seeds of discord, which would keep the commonwealth from subsiding into a state of settled government until his return. The venture was indeed a bold one, but Caesar's calculations proved to be well founded. Pompeius had but just returned from the east with a numerous army. He had only to show himself at the gates of the city at the head of his legions, and it would be impossible to resist whatever demands he might choose to advance. He might require the honor of a triumph. He might insist on the recognition by the state of the acts of his long protracted government. 
jealous as the senate was of its authority and well disposed to thwart and affront him it could not dare to withhold such marks of approbation but pompeius was supposed to have further objects in view he might regard himself as the heir of sulla and claim the dictatorship he might emulate the oriental potentates with whom he had so long been associated whose manners and principles he had studied he might aspire to the diadem the times indeed were hardly ripe for such a concession but the most desperate resistance would have been for the moment unavailing the master of the legions was really the master of the commonwealth but caesar had studied the character of the great commander and had taken his measure accurately pompeius had not the spirit nor had he the genius of a usurper it would be too much to say of him that he was withheld from violence by constitutional and patriotic principles he had never refused the honours or the powers however excessive that had been thrust into his hands he had never shown abhorrence from the shedding of roman blood or from other acts of violence when backed by authority legally committed to him but his temper was naturally sluggish and lacked the ardour of a youthful ambition his advance had been too early and too rapid and everything had hitherto yielded to him too easily to allow him to doubt that the same fortune would follow him to the end he was imbued with a calm conviction that if fate would have him king fate would crown him and that no effort was required on his part to pluck the fruit which was ready to drop into his lap of its own accord accordingly he disbanded his army at brundisium and proceeded with a few officers and a slender escort to the gates of rome before which he awaited in the garb of an imperator the moment when they should be opened by a decree of the senate to admit him to the glories of the triumph he had no doubt well deserved the nobles were just at the height of their self-gratulation pompeius entered italy at the moment when catalina was being brought to bay in the apennines when the arch-conspirator fell they were convinced that they had nothing more to fear and could have no further use for their victorious champion they had just granted lucullus the triumph which he had vainly solicited for three years they now conceded the same reward to metellus creticus they were in no hurry to associate a third commander in the honours due to the conquerors of mithridates they allowed pompeius to linger outside the walls haranguing the people from time to time in the compass martius trumpeting his own services affecting to mete out praise and blame among all parties and personages showing his own uneasiness by his jealous depreciation of cicero whom he regarded as a rival champion of the senate and vainly calling for the prompt confirmation of his acts and satisfaction of his claims to a triumph it was not till september in the same year that this honour so dear to every imperator was grudgingly accorded him he expected a solemnity of three days the senate would indulge him with two only and he might complain that their unworthy jealousy would not allow him to exhibit a large portion of the various spoils he had accumulated for the occasion but he could parade a list of eight hundred vessels one thousand fortresses and three hundred cities captured 
thirty-nine cities repeopled twenty thousand talents of gold poured into the treasury and the tribute from foreign subjects nearly doubled a goodlier array of services than any imperator before him the great conqueror had now celebrated his third triumph his first had been for victories in africa his second for the overthrow of sertorius in europe he had now completed the illustrious cycle by inscribing on the list the name of asia each section of the globe had succumbed to his prowess nevertheless on descending from his car the hero found himself alone in the city in which he was wont to be thronged by friends and flatterers lucullus was aroused from his lethargy to attack his formal rival and depreciate his services the senate was cold or hostile cicero renounced the idol of his early admiration afranius the consul whom pompeius had engaged to support his interests failed to obtain the ratification of his acts flavius the tribune sought to obtain a grant of lands for his veterans cato and metellus creticus opposed him violence ensued and the tribune complaining that his sanctity was outraged dragged the consul to prison the senators would have insisted on sharing the insult put upon their chief but pompeius ashamed or alarmed gave way once more and withdrew his demands to a more favourable opportunity he was deeply chagrined at the dishonour he had suffered in the eyes of his own soldiers repulsed by the nobles he betook himself once more to the people and sought to ingratiate himself with them by popular acts they had gazed with admiration at the splendours of his triumph and at the lavish profusion of his shows but his magnificence was tasteless still more did his person and demeanour lack the grace of his rival and their affections pompeius was no doubt in possession of great resources if he could resolve to use them himself but he had no warm friends no devoted followers or enthusiastic party at his back who would volunteer their services in his behalf and press them upon him End of section seven